Uh, Church, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel 2. We have... um, We'll we'll be finishing this chapter. We've exhausted probably every way you could look at this. One of the things I love about expository preaching is the ability to gulp the word. And what I mean by that is, if if you've ever been thirsty, yeah, if you live in Florida and you've ever gone outside, you probably have have been thirsty in your life at some point in time. I know uh, I have. I remember as a kid playing outside in the Florida heat, coming in and saying, Mom... I want, I want the glass of juice to the tippy top, all right? I don't want, don't, don't leave any room for the, for the, the glass, okay? Because I need all that I can get. I'm dying of thirst over here. And I've never, you, when you're thirsty, you don't sip the drink, do you? When you're thirsty, what do you do? You gulp. And so we have the opportunity, even though it's taken us five weeks to go through one chapter of 2 Samuel, to gulp the word, to drink from the fire hose that is the glorious word of God. And I'm excited about that this morning. Now, I will warn you, we read this last week. It's a big chunk. We'll be reading the entire chapter. And so I really mean this when I say... If you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, I would encourage and invite you to do so now as we read 2 Samuel chapter 2 and we prepare to continue from where we left off last week looking at civil war within the household of God. The precious and errant infallible word of God says this, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord told him, said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. And so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, you are blessed of the Lord for you have shown this kindness to your Lord to Saul and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a fierce battle, very fierce battle that day. And Abner and the servants of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. 
Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. And so Asahel pursued Abner, and in going he did not turn to the right hand or to the left hand from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gaia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more. nor did they fight any more. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants nineteen men in Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men three hundred and sixty men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father... We do thank you for this, your word, Lord. We are, um, we are blessed because of the ability to hear your word. And we pray, Lord, that you give us, Lord, the ability to, to see what you would have us to see this morning. That you would take these things and use them to mold us into the image of your son more and more. That we would constantly be looking for places within our own heart where sin divides us and leads us away. And leads us to all these terrible things. We repent of that. Confess it before you, Father. Even now, as we are brought before your word, would you allow us to confess and repent of our sin. So that we might be um, growing into the image of your son more and more. And growing into the presence uh, Lord of the King Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you again for this, your word. Bless it now, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, this is really a part two. Last week, we began to look at this main idea of fratricide, brother killing brother. Uh, the main idea being that sin divides us. We know that to be the fact, but that's what we see clearly in this passage. Sin brings division, particularly among the household of God. Last week, we really just looked at one point, and that is sin divides us by leading us away. Uh, and how does sin divide us by leading us away? Well, four different areas is what we looked at. We saw that sin divides us by leading us away from God's place. We see that in the text. That place, Mahanaim, do you remember what that means? It means two camps. 
And this is exactly what's happening is because of Abner, a commander like the commanders of the nations, and Ishbosheth, the puppet king, raising up to take Saul's place, Israel has divided into two camps. And not only that, but Abner has moved the capital of Jerusalem out to east of the Jordan, which is technically not even in the promised land that the Lord had promised them in Mahanaim, separating the people of God and creating division. That's what sin does. Sin leads us away from God's place. We also saw that sin leads us away from God's people. Remember, we read in Romans 9 that all of Israel is Israel, meaning not all of those who proclaim to be a part of, uh, or just because their nationality is Israelite, that they're really part of God's covenant people. And we see this very clearly here. The Lord had uh, evidently and clearly rejected Saul's line from being king over Israel and said, brought up a man after his own heart in David to be king. And what do we see? In the text, we see only Judah anoints Israel as or anoints David as king and the rest of Israel is following after Saul following in the sins of their fathers rejecting the true king of Israel and we saw how sin leads us away from God's people God's person in particular here and how that's pictured as a type to Christ not only that but we saw that sin leads us away from God's purpose. Remember, God's purpose is always tied up in human flourishing, the growth of nations being fruitful and multiplying, living together in harmony. We see that sin really destroys that. The idea of fratricide is not something that's been new. It's something that's existed all the way since the first uh, murder that took place in Genesis 4, brother killing brother. It's anti-God's purpose for his people living to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And then finally, we saw that sin leads us away from God's peace. We saw this very clearly in the text and and reminding that even though we said not all of Israel is Israel, that here they're still seen as the household of God. And what we see is the household of God divided. And we were reminded that this text really isn't about peace among the nations, about peace among the country. He's talking about sin dividing the household of God, which really hits home to us. We have to be fighters for unity within the household of God. Because when we do not confess sin to one another and we do not deal with sin the way the Lord has us to deal with sin, it will bring division among us. So we must fight for unity and for the protection of unity. So that was really kind of just the first point that we turned into the first half of this sermon. I want to continue on in looking at different ways that sin divides us. The second way we see clearly in the text that sin divides us is not only by leading us away, but sin divides us by leading us to a twist view of play. Sin divides us by leading us to a twisted view of play. Or we could say sin leads us into tragic fratricide as we see it demonstrated here. Look at verses 12 through 17 of the text again. Verses 12 through 17 of our text and look what happens. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth, remember Ishbosheth, the puppet king, Abner's the commander of Saul's army, the son of Saul, he went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab, which is a servant of David, the son of Zariah, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And so they sat down, one on one side of the pool and one on the other side of the pool, and then Abner said to Joab, "Let the young men now arise and compete before us." And Joab, Joab said, "Let them arise." And so they arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin followers of Ishbosheth 
the son of Saul and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. And therefore the place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a fierce battle that day and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of the Lord. So here's what happened. Abner suggested, you know what, let's let some of the young men come out and play before he and Joab. Notice the word there, actually perform, is the word that actually means to compete or to sport, to entertain or play. In the NIV, they translate it fight hand to hand. I don't think that's a great translation. It's, it's literally play or entertain. In fact, we know this because it's used of Samson in the book of Judges after he's taken into the land of the Philistines. Philistines, he's brought out to entertain the Philistines. We see this in Judges chapter 16, verse 27. That same verb, listen for it. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. And so what's depicted here is, is Abner's suggestion that the men participate in fighting to the death for sport as entertainment for Joab. Joab agrees, and the fight begins. 24 men, 12 each. Of course, that's significant, isn't it? Number 12, we know it's significant because of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's the end result? 24 deaths, 12 each. Each grabs the head of the other, each plunges the sword into their side of the other, and each fall together. Sin leads to a twisted view of violence, doesn't it, church? It distorts our view of violence. Now, there is a whole other sermon here on violence as entertainment, as it applies generally to our culture and even to some of our own habits, obviously. We'd be right to meditate on that and even apply it to our lives. But, but I really, again, I want to point your attention. I need you to focus on the point of our passage. This is first and foremost how sin impacts where? The household of God. And, and this is true, friends. Sin leads us to glorying in the taking down of others. The tearing down of our brothers and sisters. Now, in our passage, it's physical death or fratricide that is the result. Brother killing brother as their leaders look on. But, but listen, we know this doesn't have to be a sword, does it? As we move from the physical, temporary, typological nature of the Old Testament to its spiritual reality in the, the New Testament, we have to come to understand that often our words are swords. Our thoughts even are able to tear down and destroy the unity that we should strive for. Church, we do not need physical swords to engage in fratricide. We diminish our brother or sister in Christ every time we use our words to tear down instead of building up. Every time we provoke or promote disunity, discord, and dissension. And you know what's the result of that? According to the picture here, the result of that disunity of tearing down your brothers and sisters is this. We all die. I don't Listen, that's the point. Twelve tribes, both sides engage in battle, and who survives? No one. That's the lesson. We all stand or fall together. I've said this several times, I'll say it again. Israel's greatest threat was Israel. 
It wasn't the nations, it was Israel. So friends, who do you think your greatest threat is? What do you think our greatest threat is? What president is elected? What our, what our culture decides is morally acceptable? No! Our greatest threat is allowing sin to pervade our lives and twist the way we see the world, causing us to doubt the goodness and graciousness of our God. Causing us to diminish our love for him and for others. That is our greatest threat. Sin leads to fratricide. It leads to a twisted view of play. And that's not the only way that sin divides us. We also see that sin divides us by leading us to a destructive pursuit. Sin divides us by leading us to a destructive pursuit. We see this clearly in verses 18 through 23. We've mentioned this story again before, but I want to read it again for you. Now, the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left hand following, uh, from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left hand and lay hold of one of the young men. Take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. Now, now on the surface of these verses, the lesson's actually pretty clear, isn't it? You, you might say that the moral of the story is judge yourself soberly. <laughs> Asahel had an overestimated view of his own strength and prowess, didn't he? I mean, think about what's transpiring here. He refuses two warnings to turn aside from his pursuit of Abner. Abner does not want to kill this man, but in the end, Asahel refuses to heed his warning and dies on the butt end of Abner's spear. And hear me, as Israel takes up this narrative and as they read it, they're meant to hear the warning too. Continue to pursue your brothers and sisters and perish. Sin, saints, this is what sin does. Sin hardens our hearts, it stops up our ears, and blurs our vision. Like Asahel, we continue to pursue and think more of ourselves than we ought. We think we're invincible. We think that sin will not have its way with us, and yet it does. It's like being caught in the tractor beam of the Star Destroyer, right? Here's the sick part. We're not in our spaceship trying to get away from the tractor beam. We actually think we're in control. Like we're the ones who are about to destroy our enemy. And all the while, we're just running to the very tip of the sword that will destroy us. So it was in Israel. The warning is clear. You know what it is? Stop! <laughs> if you do not stop, you will perish. Stop pursuing sin. Sin is vanity. Everything it offers is vanity. We believe we're approaching our target with great strength to be able to overcome our opponent, but all the while, we're simply building up momentum for the inevitable crash. 
Sin destroys us and divides us by leading us to a destructive pursuit. Not only that, and not only does sin lead to fratricide by leading us to a twisted view of play, but I want you to see this. Sin divides us by leading us to a bitter end. Sin divides by leading us to a bitter end. That's what we find in verses 24 and 28. And really, this is kind of the point of the scene as it all unfolds. We, we reach the climax in verse 26 and following. After Abner and all of Israel come together as one group, united, Abner stands and, and the Bible says, he called out to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? Civil war in the household of God will lead to a bitter end. As we've all heard, you've probably heard this before, right? A house divided will not stand. The various scenes that we've just read about, they all build towards this climax. The question, though, really in the course of the narrative, is not for Joab. Uh, the question is for the reader, the audience. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? By the way, this is the resolution of the conflict here. Israel needs to become one group, not under Ishbosheth or Abner, but under David. And, and that's going to happen. That'll transpire not too long from now in the course of the narrative. But this is the solution. Israel needs to realize that the sword is never satisfied. It devours and devours forever. And the end is bitter. And so listen, as we think about applying this to us, we need to hear the warning here. It's fine, right even, to think about how this helps us understand our world. I mean, generally speaking, this could be applied to all of humanity, couldn't it? The sword does devour forever. It knows no end. We've seen this throughout history. One war gives way to another war and so on and so forth. The end of humanity will be bitter for those who trust in the sword. But again, where's this lesson directed? It's directed to the household of God first and foremost. And, and look, I get it. We're not likely here to pull out swords and stab one another in the side. Not this morning at least. Praise the Lord. But it doesn't mean, friends, that we don't bite and devour one another. Does it? In fact, we can know with certainty that we do because God's word warns us that we must not. And if God's word warns us that we must not, it means that we're actually inclined to do this. Our unity is grounded in Christ. Our unity, it is fixed and it is certain to the one who actually gave himself over to be devoured by the sword that he might devour death. He might remove it forever. So we praise God for the one who stood in our stead, who took our place, who took upon himself the wrath of God that we might receive forgiveness, grace, and mercy. But if we're honest, we all know very well how prone we are and how easy it is to bite and devour one another. This instruction, it, it's for us, saints. The lesson is clear. We cannot fight one another and expect to thrive as a church. God intends peace for us. 
God intends that we flourish in this community. So let's just bring it right here to First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. He desires human flourishing in our midst. Sin leading to disunity destroys it. We cannot bite and devour one another and know the blessing of the unity that God intends for us. So sin, to whatever extent it is infecting your thoughts, your words, or deeds, then you have to recognize that that very sin is what's leading you away from God's place, God's people, God's person, purpose, and God's peace. Which is why, by the way, every week when we gather, we intend to confess sin. But some of us might need to go further, honestly. We, we may need to grab a brother and sister and confess specific sin to them. We might ask for their prayers that you might fight against it. Do not be naive, church family. Sin continues to have the same effect in the household of God and in the church's lives for those who refuse to confess it and fight against it. Sin will cause fratricide, blinding us to a fracture pursuit, leading us to a bitter end. The sword will devour forever, so lay it down and put on Christ. You will gain nothing if you attack your brother. You will only destroy yourself and him. But the beauty is, Christ is better. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, as Brother Corey read for us, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty only. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Let's be honest. Think about it. How many churches have been destroyed by biting and devouring? How many? How many have been destroyed by disunity? Do not take it for granted. We are called to protect it. We are called to strive for it because our Messiah is the one who has established it. In fact, you know, we even see that in this text. Now, I know that Jesus Christ, his name is not literally mentioned here, but if you haven't been able to come to our Old Testament survey class on Wednesday night, then you need to know that, that the Old Testament is always, always pointing forward to Christ, particularly in this thing that we like to call types or typology. And David is clearly a type of Christ. He is a figure that pre-shadows and points to Christ. And so David prays, plays the role of prefiguring the Messiah here and look at how this connects all together. We see the Messiah establishes unity and there's a lesson for us in how. How does he establish unity in this passage specifically? How do we see this? Well, he does it in several ways. One, the Messiah establishes unity by promoting goodness and righteousness. The Messiah establishes unity by promoting goodness and righteousness. I want you to go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 4 and 5 and read those with me. The Bible says, Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. 
So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. Now, it's important to note, in much of the narrative we've read the last couple of weeks, verses 12 through 32, David's not involved in any of those events that are recorded. Did you notice that? David is not a part of the scene uh, at, with Joab and Abner and the men competing. We're to assume that David would not approve of that. David's words and deeds in this chapter are all recorded in verses 1 through 7. And as we saw the last couple of weeks, David is a man after God's own heart. David is a man who inquires of his Lord. David hears, David obeys. He leads his people out of exile into the promised land, while Abner leads them out of the promised land. But in verses 4 to 7, we're actually able to add to this picture. We know here that David promotes goodness. This is part of the overall picture of David as the righteous ruler. You remember what he did in chapter 1 to that messenger who killed the Lord's anointed? What did he do? He punished evil justly. He punished the one who put his hand out against the Lord's anointed. But here, not only does he punish evil, he recognizes and rewards good. Where true injustice and unrighteousness is punished and true justice and righteousness is rewarded, there you have the kingdom of God. Are you okay with that? <laughs> you comfortable with that? By the way, this is why the gospel, in fact, is such gloriously good news. See, here in our passage, we're seeing David presented as the righteous one who executes justice against the unjust, but he also rewards those who act justly. He rewards the loyalty of Jabesh Gilead for their loyalty to Saul. This is why the gospel is such good news. Not because, as we might be tempted to think here, that the kingdom of God has come by ignoring injustice and unrighteousness. If that's the gospel you heard, you've been told the wrong gospel. That's not the case at all. It's not that God has now decided, you know what, we're just going to set justice and righteousness aside. No longer punishing it so all you sinners can come in. The gospel is in sin, in unrighteousness, and injustice. They've all been punished. The sin of unrighteousness and justice has been punished where? On the cross. Jesus stood in our said so that the righteousness of God might be revealed by faith in Christ. He is just in the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, placing the punishment due for our sins on him and granting us the reward of righteousness that belongs to him. So we've come to receive every spiritual blessing in and through Christ. Listen, our unity is grounded in the work of Christ because in him all of our sin was punished and he is our reward. So the Messiah has initiated a kingdom in which righteousness dwells. But do we understand that this is glorious and good? Because if we did understand that, then we would strive to live righteous lives. Like our lives matter. And it impacts our unity. Saints, the Lord has freed us from our sin. He's called us to love our brothers and sisters and all people as an overflow of the grace of God towards us in Christ. He promotes goodness by disciplining us when we fall into sin. By the way, do you ever pray for that? You know that you should, 
Oh Lord, do not leave me in my sin. Give me the grace of discipline if I've strayed from you. Do you pray that for your brothers and sisters? Or do we think so low of the sacrifice of Christ that we fail to see the depth of the horridness of our own sin against the righteous God? Let it not be so. We belong to the kingdom of light. We are children of light. We follow the righteous king who punishes evil and rewards the good. Our unity is increased when evil is rebuked and good is promoted. You realize that the temptation is to think, you know what? If I want to be more united with my brothers and sisters, you know what I need to do? I, I just don't need to address sin. If I don't address sin, we'll be more united. If I just, if I just let sin go. Because if I address your sin, you, you know what might happen? I might offend you. Friends, do you know I'm choosing not to love you if I don't address your sin? Did you know that? That, that you are choosing not to love me if you don't address my sin? If we're afraid to point out righteous deeds and say this is good even, imitate this, and we do this often, See, even if we're promoting or, or, or we're encouraging others in their sin, you know what we fail to do? Reward those who do good. Why? Because, we, well, you know, we don't want to elevate any man because it's all about Christ. But, but really, even in doing that, we fail to see that any community that is going to know the unity and peace that God has for us must be a community that is committed to disciplining and rebuking sin where it's found and promoting what is good and righteous. Even at times saying, this man's life is righteousness imitated. Why? Because it's an overflow of the grace of our Savior. Why would we hesitate to point to it and say that it's true, good, beautiful, and worthy of our imitation? Can I tell you, I'm chief of this. Like, I just, I just don't receive things well. Anybody with me there? And here's what happens. When we don't do that, like if, if somebody comes up to you and says... Hey, I just want to thank you for your heart and the way you serve. And you just say, no, 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 no. Don't thank me. I am lowly. <laughs> I am nothing. It's all about the Lord. Just say thank you. Praise God. <laughs> like, don't, don't go overboard with it. You know why? Because what's that person going to do? They're never going to try and encourage you again. <laughs> if that's your response to that, that you rebuke them for encouraging you, that's not a good thing, friends. We ought to reward that is good and righteous. We ought to. We ought to encourage brothers when they do something well. And our brothers ought to receive it well. And I realize that you've probably experienced that from me at any point in time. Because I do that often. Friends, receive it. Praise God. It's a gift. It's an overflow of his grace. Why would we hesitate to point it out? So the Messiah promotes goodness, but listen, the Messiah establishes unity also by, by praying for blessing. Look at verses 5 and 6 of our text. Praying for blessing. David prays for Jabesh Gilead, or delivers a benediction here, a blessing upon them. And look what he says. He says, you're blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. 
It's a pronouncement of blessing upon a people who haven't even given their loyalty to David. David seeks them out. David sends a word, a blessing upon them, though they've not even received him. David points us to the Christ who brings blessing to us even while we were still his enemies. He becomes as our true and better Levitical priest who stands over us. In fact, that's the picture at the end of Luke as he stands with his hands raised, pronouncing a blessing upon the disciples and all who would hear their message and believe on him. David, pointing to him, also reminds us that we are to imitate our Savior by praying for our brothers and sisters. We are to pray for their blessing in whatever form the Lord may bring it, but to be faithful in doing so. You know, you'll find that the reality is it's really, really hard for division to take root amongst the people who are committed to praying for one another. It really is. In fact, maybe even during the sermon, you've, you've thought of somebody who you may be worried about as creating division or disunity within the household of God. Let me just encourage you right now. Commit to pray for someone you feel estranged from on a regular basis. And what you'll find is your heart is drawn nearer and nearer to them without even saying a word. If you have a root of bitterness toward a person, pray for that person and you'll find that root of bitterness begin to disappear. Now listen, don't just be like oh Lord help them and then you know pray for them. But no ask the Lord, Lord would you, would you pour out your kindness upon them and their family? Would you show them your steadfast love? Would you bless them and encourage them? Strengthen them Father pray for them because it's a way that the Messiah established unity and we can follow in his imitation in that way. Messiah establishes unity by promoting goodness and righteousness. He establishes unity by praying for blessing, but he also establishes unity by promising favor. The Messiah establishes unity by promising favor. Again, look at verse 6. David promises to do them good. So let's just skip right to Jesus here and see how this points to Jesus. Listen, if you're hearing my words this morning, do you know that Jesus Christ promises to do you good? If you'll receive him as king, he promises to do you good. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He says, come under my rule. Walk with me. Follow me. Obey me. Know the blessing of our father. Jesus promises to do us good. And again, as we'll see in establishing unity, we are called to imitate him in that. We're called to do good to all people. Again, as Brother Corey read and Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. See, there's a priority in our commitment to righteous deeds or good works. We are to do good to all people, yes, amen and hallelujah, but there is a priority to the family of God, and I'll take that a step further. There's a priority to the household of God to which you have joined yourself. That is the local concrete expression of the universal church. Do good to one another. Do not, please, please do not give in to the voice of the devil who tempts you constantly to ask, well, what good have they done for me? Look right past him to the Savior. Because friends, the reality is if the Savior asked that question, what good have these enemies done for me? We would have no salvation. Look 
to the Savior who's given you every spiritual blessing in himself, who has done you a good that cannot be measured. Go and do good to your brothers and sisters. Finally, we see the Messiah promotes unity. He establishes unity by promoting goodness and righteousness. He prays for blessing. He promises favor. favor. And then finally, the Messiah establishes unity by pointing to the kingdom in verse 7. The Messiah establishes unity by pointing to the kingdom in verse 7. This kingdom admonition or exhortation takes place right here in verse 7. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant. For your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. He's proclaiming the kingdom that has been established by Judah coming and anointing him as their king. He's arisen in Israel at Hebron as the king of God's people. And Jabesh Gilead has just received that good news. And though that's good news, I've got even better news that this news points to. Christ lives. He's been raised from the dead and he reigns even now at the right hand of our father. He declares peace to all who receive him. He has brought a kingdom that has already been initiated, that's expanding and will be consummated on the day he returns. And oh, how we long for that day. There is a day when that kingdom will fill the whole earth and so be strong and valiant. Encourage your brothers and sisters to be strong and valiant. Be sin fighters for you've been freed and we know that joy comes in the morning. One more thing briefly. I want you, if you go all the way to the end of this passage, I pointed this out before. Maybe I haven't. Maybe I erased it. But I want you to notice something. It's not unimportant that the picture of the end of the passage is this. And Joab and his men went all night. And they came to Hebron at daybreak. To me, this is why biblical historical narratives are so beautiful. Because in those few words, you know what there is? There's a picture painted toward the dawning of the day that you and I all long for. Saints, the day is broke. On the morning that Christ was raised from the dead, the day broke and the end is near. So church, be encouraged this morning. Be convicted. <laughs> Repent. Yes, love your brothers and sisters with greater sincerity. Strive for the unity that is ours in Christ. But be encouraged. There is a day quickly approaching where we will stand united in the presence of our King as he wipes away every tear from our eyes. As he brings to bear the presence of God in the lives of his people that we long for more than the breath we now breathe. Friends, be encouraged. The Lord is returning. And when he does, there will be perfect unity forever. So now in our context, we fight and we strive for that unity. We do so together because we know that sin divides us and we know that the Messiah has come and he has established unity in the hearts of his people. Would you stand together as we pray? Gracious Father, Lord, we confess that we see this warning depicted in the text and, and we confess that often we allow sin to lead us away from your place, your people, your purpose, and your peace. Too often we engage in fratricide the killing of our brothers and sisters, tearing them down with our thoughts, words, and deeds. Too often, 
we engage in destructive pursuits that lead to a bitter end. Lord, we come before you this morning confessing it and asking for your grace to be poured out upon us. Renew our minds. Lord, help us to be sin fighters, to be strong and valiant, remembering what our Messiah has brought to bear in the lives of his people. We thank you for the unity he has accomplished here in First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. And we pray that you would refresh our spirits, that we might grow even to love your people more, that even though I believe we are a very united church, that Lord, we would continue to fight for it even more. We ask for your help in this endeavor, knowing that we are weak, but knowing that you are strong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.